0: Happening now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. My name is Jason Neifer. I am joining you live from Missoula, Montana, and this is episode 123 of the EdTech Situation Room from January 30th, 2019. Uh, I am the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus. And joining me, as always... Dr. Wes Fryer, good evening, Wes. How are you today?
1: Good evening, Jason. I am fine. I am happy to not live in Chicago or in the northern tier. Where are you guys? You guys are affected, right? I mean, are you you too far west?
0: No, yeah, we're too far west. Uh, Missoula uh, was down to nine last night, which is not, you know, obviously balmy, but we we experience much worse typically. It's
1: not negative 40, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, we're, we're dealing with like 29, so we're just pretty, pretty mild. But I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School here in Oklahoma City, and glad to be here to talk tech news with you again this week.
0: Okay, well, for those of you new to the format, uh, we tend to look at a lot of links every week and try to put them through an educational lens. You can see the links at our website at techsr.com. Uh, and otherwise, uh, our analysis is usually enough to at least get you through the major story. And taking a look at our links for this week, I want to start off um, with a couple of uh, interesting things from our friends uh, at our the analysis. YouTube and the Google. Uh, first and foremost, and uh, I'll I have a geek of the week a little bit later about Google TV, but uh, this great article from January 29th from 9 to 5 Google, the multi-channel YouTube network Defy Media left 50 creators out of 1.7 million after closing. And the actual Defy media piece here is not really what I'm interested in and talking about, but I think you're starting to see some right sizing, or at least maybe some adaptation of what TV content, informal TV content, uh, uh, produced content by companies is looking like in the YouTube era. We've talked about YouTube uh, dozens of times on the podcast. I have myself gone through a bit of a YouTube renaissance as I find a number of interesting channels, some of them highly produced, some of them more individually produced. What is happening now is the gold mine of YouTube seems to be a little more, I guess, nuanced than it was just a couple of years ago. You're still going to find a lot of channels that are dominated by uh, teens, preteens, 20-somethings that are informally produced shows that oftentimes have a kind of a gag or a silliness notion to them. They're probably going to make money in uh, endorsements and and advertising fees on YouTube. But the kind of networks that uh, YouTube inspired the creation of, and the one I think about is the now defunct Revision 3, Uh, many, many different uh, formal commercial television networks developed out of the YouTube era, and few of them remain at this point. And some of them have joined up with others. There's been a lot of collapsing of the networks into bigger media players. But generally speaking, um, a lot of these kind of gold mine style massive increase in viewership and uh, seemingly profits are starting to uh, kind of evolve uh, into something uh, a little more traditional from a market standpoint. The first, uh, Wes, has any program that you watch on YouTube been canceled as of late because of the kind of dare I say YouTube correction as it uh, kind of right right sizes its way in the market?
1: No, I have uh, I have not. Uh, I've just basically been watching as many different. Queen videos and documentaries since Bohemian Rhapsody. So um, I have not been affected, but um, I did drop another, another link in there that I think is, it's also nine to five Google uh, from just a couple days before that article on the 25th, which indicates that YouTube is trying to cut down on the conspiracy video recommendations, which are are leading people astray. So um, I would agree. I think they're stepping up to their responsibility. Uh, When you are a publisher, you've got responsibilities and I think that, you know, in many ways, YouTube, the social media has been a wild west uh, with the tech correction and the threat of the tech correction in terms of regulation coming. I think that's probably, you know, been a factor, Um, but it's just also a factor of scale. You know, if we're to ask the average teenager today in the United States, you know, how do you tend to get a lot of your information. Um, They're not reading the newspaper. They may not even be reading print books beyond, you know, those that are going to be required for class that they can't get digitally. I'm continually amazed by, you know, how much video content our, our daughters consume. And also, you know, we've had and do and still have conversations on and off about, you know, what, what should the limits of that be? So I mentioned in my, um, middle child, older daughter, the other day that you know she she 's never really liked to read that much, but she loves to you know watch videos and she 's pretty up on a whole lot of things going on she 's never been a better day for somebody who wants to you know consume and learn via video than today and i'm glad to see youtube stepping up to its responsibilities to you know police itself and not allow it to be just a completely wild west frontier of anything goes especially when it comes to just trying to get your your eyeballs on there as much as it as much as it can even if that is at the expense of of let's say truth or you know a mainstream opinion when it comes to things like the moon landing or you know Shootings at a at a at a school, or you know, all all kinds of other things that we've seen—an explosion of uh, fringe content really be elevated beyond what what it should be, or amplified beyond what it should be.
0: Sure, and I have a little experience of this from the more personal creator standpoint. Uh, a colleague of mine at the Montana Digital Academy, Mike, who is one of my partners in crime in uh, the technology world. His mom's got a crafty YouTube channel. She's a uh, retired. Uh, nonprofit professional uh, that lives in Helena, and she has a, a YouTube channel, 15,000 followers now. and That number is increasing uh, quickly. And she, it's you know, she's not making millions in retirement off of it, but gets a check every month for advertising, and plus is able to connect with thousands of fans that, that log into the channel. And I, I think there's a lot of value in that kind of more informal YouTube channel. I know that I learn a lot of things personally on YouTube, not formal things, not if I wanted to go find out more about World War II, I really wouldn't use YouTube uh, because I think that their written sources tend to be a little better there in providing quick, efficient information. But if I want to learn how to change the battery in my cell phone or to uh, something I'm actually considering doing with my personal cell phone, I have a LG V20, which is a nearly three-year-old Android model now. It's one of the last major models that has a removable, user-serviceable battery, so it has a lot of value to me because of, of, of the way I use phones, and then I also travel with a large travel battery when I travel with that particular phone. A lot of users are pulling the phone apart to reapply what's called the thermal paste, which is a little bit of gunk that sits between the central processing unit of your phone and usually a heat sink, something that helps distribute heat. Well, as it turns out, most of the thermal paste used by LG in making this phone was just terrible. And a lot of those phones happened to overheat and do called boot loop, which is it just you know, randomly starts to restart. It sometimes gets into a little boot loop doing it. And uh, there's a great YouTube video on, on exactly this. It's made by someone who's not an electronics geek, but had a, probably a, another cell phone over a table and showed how he did it. It's something I've been involved in too. And that ability to serve, uh, you know, small audiences with interesting, personally uh, passionate information, I think is pretty. Uh, Wes, I also saw you dropped an article in about uh, the new Gmail. What does that look like?
1: Well, it's just a little bit more material design, a little more updates. It doesn't look like it's it's anything you know hugely substantive. Um, so just just a few things moved around, but it definitely is worth mentioning to everybody. and I think. Well, I don't know. We're we're doing a, a school wide presentation tomorrow. Um, I've got you know I'll have about three three or four minutes, uh, which I'm going to talk mainly about social engineering and just trying to to be savvy to that. But it is probably a good idea if your school and if you personally use Gmail to use the Gmail app. I hope that they will allow us to report phishing within the mobile app because to date that's. Than something you've, you've just had to do on a laptop or a desktop in the full-blown, you know, Google Chrome. Um, but I, I think the experience there is uh, quite a bit better. But from what I read about that, it, it looks like it's more cosmetic. So it's not a game-changing uh, update this time.
0: Okay, excellent. Uh, where shall we go to next, sir?
1: I'd like to jump down to the security links. And, of course, there's a lot of overlap in, in what we're talking about with privacy and technology correction, et cetera. Um, we do have a lot more categorization of our links now in our Google Doc uh, than we typically do on the show notes. The show notes usually tend to have the links kind of in the chronological order that we cover them. Um, this one's a real quick one from PC World on January 30th. Recent antivirus tests are bad news for paid security suites. Now, that also could be titled you know, recent antivirus news are great news for consumers because what it means is that you may not need to pay a third-party company as you have forever, you know, especially on the Windows side to, you know, try to keep your machine uh, good. The uh, free versions that you can get, uh, especially from Microsoft with with, uh, Windows Defender. And then uh, the other one I think is that AVG um, that they mention here is – you know, pretty much just uh, just as good as what you're what you're going to be able to to pay for. Um, some of these programs are going to you know throw in other stuff like password and password managers, and VPNs. But you know, the article points out and recommends that you know if you just go with um, I guess a, a-, a vast free antivirus is the one um, that's you know pretty much rating uh, equally. You probably don't need to pay for that. So we uh, still have our continuing license for Kaspersky, and we've still got that on a bunch of machines because we just don't yet have mobile device management rolled out on all our computers. We're in a transition to that. But uh, our plan it, um, is, and we are, uh, taking that off of, of our Macs. And on the Windows side, we're just going with built-in Windows Defender. Um, so it's good to see this as uh, comparison, you know that that's taken your your McAfee's and your uh, Norton's and Kaspersky's and F Secure and all all of these different you know all these different uh, programs. Um, so, Jason, do you do you guys still run a commercial antivirus? And what do you say to those folks that come up and and ask you for your own personal opinion on a topic such as uh, client based security software and what you should run?
0: Well, um, so uh, when I'm on a Mac, I don't run I did very briefly. Um, I would say maybe the early part of my primarily Mac days, uh, when I just moved over from a PC, I had had that habit to install antivirus, and then it just stopped at some point. And I, um, I did have when I was a PC user uh, initially. I did have a number of, of, of uh, uh, viruses that were stop viruses, Trojan horses, other malware stopped by antivirus it was usually when i was visiting the darker corners of the internet uh and and trying to download things that perhaps were uh just short of quote-unquote legal uh and as it turns out you know it came with risk and so uh, i did start running antivirus then and i would say i moved when i moved back to pc um uh as a as a a co-operating system that you know i i did usually install one of the free antiviruses and, and felt secure in doing that um, I'm now primarily on a Chromebook when I'm on mobile I'm on the Chromebook right now. Obviously, no virus protection needed for a Chromebook. And there's even been some experiments with looking at kind of anti-malware plugins for Chrome. And I've read a lot of reviews that said they're just not necessary for very basic net hygiene. You're smart about the ways that you uh, utilize the Internet. Uh, I do think it's very interesting that uh, Windows Defender is generally enough now. I think Microsoft has a lot of interest to develop that software to make sure that malware or other nastiness does not become a phenomenon that spreads from Windows machine to Windows machine. And so I think it's good that we're heading in that direction. Although I will say, I remember three or four years back even, that there's a lot of uh, articles compared various antivirus suites and said that you know they, they're just not they're just not universal in their ability to uh, protect you from attack.
1: Well, and we'll reference some discussion that we had a number of weeks ago, uh, specifically dealing with allegations of you know hacks and ways in which companies, and specifically, um, Kaspersky and Russia. You know, Kaspersky has been been banned off of all, I think, Department of Defense and Homeland Security computers. Um, And some of those articles that we had reviewed at the time were suggesting, you know, it may have not been a direct collaboration with Kaspersky that is a Russian based company with the government of Russia. It also just simply gave such low level access to every single file that if the machine was compromised, getting access to the Kaspersky logs allowed a hacker to do a very quick Search, for instance, for an acronym for, that meant you know classification um, high, you know high classification documents and and um, Microsoft actually changed its licensing and its rules for how antivirus You know, third-party vendors um, had to be vetted in order to have access to the the system. So it really, it's been a game changer, and I, I don't anticipate at this point with you know, and this is the this is why you can't predict you know, educational technology more than just a few years out, right? I mean, this has been a a pretty quick thing that's that's changed in the last few years, Um, but I don't anticipate us renewing our. Our contract for Kaspersky, and we may not even renew anything, right? I think we found on our Macs it was overkill and unnecessary uh, to be running that software. Um, we are running, you know, a lot of Chrome and that's wonderful to just not have to worry about it. Um, but on the, on the Windows side, you know, Windows Defender, it, you know, Microsoft used to have fairly laughable security software and you just had to go third party. You, there was, there was no getting around it, whether you were, you know, nosing around darker sides of the internet or not. I mean, especially now it's, it can be so perilous. Um, shoot, I, <laughs> did a, a search on, on a, the Edge browser for Google Chrome a few weeks ago, and at that time uh, the Bing search engine was actually serving up a malware site that installed a false uh, version of Chrome, you know, that I had to wipe the machine. I, I was working quickly before I realized I had done that. Um, so anyway, it's, it's, it's easy to click something that is going to, to be perilous. And that, that actually, I, I'll, I'll do this article real quick, links to one, then I think I also put, uh, maybe I put it under Google. Uh, no, I put it under security. Um uh, where did I put it? We got too, we got too many links here tonight, Jason. Uh, yes, there it is. You got it highlighted under technology correction. Google takes its first steps towards killing the URL. Wired magazine, January 29th. Well, that's a bit of an extreme headline. Um, what it's saying is Google is trying to deal with and provide a clear way, much in the way that GDPR in Europe is trying to to tell companies, hey, you need to clearly tell people what kind of data is being taken. You know, they're being share- they're sharing how you're using it. Um, Google is saying that there's all these redirects and these different ways in which you know you're jumping around to different links, and so you know we need a way that more clearly lets people know what site they're looking at, whether it is you know, legitimate or not, there's an open source project called Trick URI. And so that's what this is talking about is how that might be integrated into different browsers uh, so that folks don't have to have, you know, a certification or be an IT professional to say, hey, this is a legitimate site, this isn't. So I think those are good uh you know, that, those, that, that, that's a good step. And again, the need for media literacy. Hello. We say it every week, probably. uh, It's important. And it's not, it's not just for the geeks and it's not just for the librarians, you know, it's for, it's for everybody who's online.
0: Absolutely. Um, Let's see. There was, uh, should we maybe do some more technology correction stuff?
1: Sure, sounds good.
0: So, uh, we'll, I want to talk a little bit about uh, at Apple's uh, pri- or, uh, quarterly sales—not uh, sales of sales, uh, investment call because I think there's some interesting information there and some response to that. But there's also more evidence of maybe a technology correction or technology correction question mark. Um, I was surprised to read the article from the BBC on on uh, today that said that Facebook actually. Um, uh, continue to engage with the platform, and actually they increased in in users um, over the last month. And that's something that's of a great surprise to me. I do feel like that in my personal life, there's a lot of people that are either uh, disengaging with Facebook, or in some cases leaving the platform altogether. Um, But they did say that uh, uh, the number of people who logged into its site at least once a month jumped 9% in 2000 18 to 3 point, or 2.32 billion people, which is a, a number that honestly is mind-boggling to me that uh, that many people, 2.3 billion people, utilize Facebook. And um, they uh, uh, increased in their revenues from, largely from advertising by 30% last year. Facebook is not hurting uh, for that. And so I am surprised to see that by the fact that about a year ago, we had been reporting some decreases in other statistics of Facebook. Including the amount of time spent on the website per month by the average user.
1: I'll do two quick ones under that technology correction as well. This is a fantastic BBC article uh, from two days ago or one day ago, I guess, from January 29th, Meet the data guardians taking on the tech giants. Uh, shout out to Lucy, who is tech savvy girl on Twitter and. Uh, She's actually up in Vermont, and there's a number of folks. Vermont sometimes always seems to be leading education in terms of portfolios and assessment and all kinds of, of things going on. And I think they're leading the, the charge in terms of data privacy and looking at the critical importance of, of taking this on uh, at school. And so this article talks about a fascinating company that this guy ha- uh, has spent half a half a million pounds of his own money, uh, UK-based. It's called digi.me. And what it's trying to do is completely flip the model now where in, currently companies are harvesting information about us all over the place. You go to the pharmacy, you go to the grocery store, you go to the pet store, whatever you buy, you know, uh, about your uh, frequent shopper cards. You know, can we get your phone number? Can we get your email? Collect the dots, you know. I think this article or one of the others in this series talks about maybe there's 3,000 data points now uh, that they estimate, you know, these companies together may have about each and every consumer. And as we talked about her, I mentioned, I think, last time that really great book and video on surveillance capitalism. I mean, this is an economic model now uh, that is very prevalent in Silicon Valley. So anyway, this Digi.me was founded by Julian Ranger. And so he's really trying to get us as consumers to be in charge of our data. So our data is going to be housed on our device, and then we're going to be able to allow companies to have access to that. And I think they're going to actually pay to have that kind of access. Um, I watched a little video. I haven't downloaded it yet. Um, Certainly it's a formidable um, economic model to try to flip surveillance capitalism, Um, but it's a a pretty – it's a, it, what he says is whether his product, you know, succeeds or fails, this idea that the consumer needs to be in charge of their information is an idea that is going to, you know, continue to move forward. Um, so there's some other projects that they talk about. Uh, there's a hub of all things project that... Um, is uh, a collaboration between seven British universities, and it's like a mini fortress for all your personal data. Of course, you can still get these things hacked, right? I mean, the, the main database that had all the security clearance information about, I think, U.S. military as well as, you know, Foreign Service and maybe even CIA, all kinds of agencies, I mean, has been hacked by China. So that is the most personal blackmailable type you know, information that the government has collected and, and it's been hacked by, we believe, another a, a nation state. So anyway, this it's always perilous when things are digitized. But I think those are, you know, good um, initiatives that are that are taking place. Um, one thing that is not good is the article below that from ProPublica. Also on January 28th, Facebook moves to block ad transparency tools, including ours. And if you're a longtime listener, you you may remember that Jason and I are big fans of Manush Samarodi and the Note to Self podcast, which sadly has gone by the wayside as she's moved on to other things. But because of that and some of the different initiatives for privacy that they talked about, you know, I got on and used different tools that enabled me to see what Facebook, Facebook thinks it knows about me and all the different things that i 've said I liked, et etc and so they uh, ProPublica had developed some really powerful crowdsourcing tools which were uh, basically able to take a look at what Facebook was gathering and and how they were putting those archives together and so facebook uh, has has killed those things and said, you know hey this violates you know violates our apis, but what they 're doing is continuing to operate in the dark and not allow consumers to have that kind of access and accountability and therefore the tech correction. We're probably going to need some kind of regulation, which hopefully doesn't break the entire Internet. Uh, But it's, you know, we can't. This is Wes Fryer talking. uh, We can't just let Zuck regulate himself and say, Zuck, you've, you've only made a few mistakes. You know, you can do better, old boy. Uh, it's going to take a much heavier hand than that, and evidence of Facebook and their desire to remain in the shadows, I think, is in that Pro public article.
0: Absolutely, and then I, I have maybe a slightly different take on the, the tech correction we talk about often the podcast tonight. Um, so there's a great article. It is from PC Magazine today, and and I saw this headline, and then when I read the article uh, early this morning. Um, No, I read this elsewhere, I think. Uh, This is just the link I threw in. But um, the overall cell phone uh, shipments were down last year, right? Mm -hmm. And if you look across manufacturers, uh, everyone was down. heard a little bit about this from the Apple call, uh, investors call that we were talking about earlier today. But I was thinking a lot about the, the, the decrease in cell phone sales. And we've talked about this a couple of different times recently on the podcast. And part of the reason why is because it feels like Cell phones are lasting longer. They're more expensive to replace, and they're lasting longer. And so as an example of this, um, uh, my buddy Mike from work is running around with an iPhone 7 right now. And the iPhone 7 for him is a three-year-old device. And he says it's just fine. This is a guy that usually purchased the newest uh, iPhone at least every year, if not every other year. And he had a great... Uh, track record of trading them in for optimal pricing and receiving uh, the newest one for not a whole lot more. And he's had some other things go on too. He's recently wrangled uh, uh, iPad access back from his daughters, who recently themselves become cell phone users, which has uh, changed the family dynamic in regards to devices a little bit around the house. But he just doesn't see the need to upgrade to an eight or an X or an XS or any of the the newer models of, of the iPhone. We had a great article a couple of weeks ago saying that. Um, uh, uh, where Kevin Rose was referring to his mom as the reason why cell phones are not selling. They're just, there's a lot of new interesting things. They're just not enough to justify the extraordinary expense. Well, take that, and the headline for PC Magazine is ridiculous. Uh, the 2018 was the worst year ever for smartphone shipments. Well, we could go back to 1992, which would be a much worse year for smartphone phone shipments if you look at uh, that piece. But let's ignore that for a moment. And I want to f- focus on the other article, which I think is more interesting. This article is about, uh, have phones become boring while well, they're about to get weird? This is from our good friends at Wired. And they're talking about all of the kind of ridiculous things that are now being pushed in the marketplace. And of course, probably the best example of this is foldable phones, right? That there is uh, a lot of foldable technology at CES, the Consumer Electronics Show this year. Uh, Particularly, Samsung has a foldable phone model. There's also a lot of foldable screens and rollable screens that are available in the marketplace or will be this coming year. But I think part of it is that I remember probably, actually, just a couple years ago in the early episodes of this podcast, we talked a little bit about that uh, new iPhones were kind of boring. New Android phones were kind of boring. And a little thinner, and a little higher resolution screen, maybe a little brighter of a screen, maybe a little more storage wasn't compelling enough to encourage anyone but the complete have-to-have-the-latest phone zealots to buy these devices. So here we are in 2019. Um, I can't remember if we talked about this article last week, but uh, Samsung, the Galaxy S10, has been leaking pretty aggressively in the media the last two weeks. Uh, they're supposedly an $1,800 model of the S10. They'll be released that has 12 gigabytes of RAM and a terabyte of storage on board. That is a ridiculously priced phone for a ridiculously over model, right? And it's not going to provide that much more functionality over my now three-year-old LG 20 And I think part of the tech correction, uh, this notion that our relationship with technology is going to change, is the newest, bigger, brightest Model may not be necessary for anyone but the the most enthusiast of or enthusiastic of enthusiasts, right? And and you're talking to a couple of geeks here, right? Weston, I love new hardware; it's the best. But I can't see justify justifying spending $1,800 for a Galaxy S10, even if it has a terabyte of storage, even if it has 12 gigs of RAM that, that come on. Board. And so I think there's multifacets to this kind of correction mentality that obviously things are going to look different than they did the previous 20 years.
1: Totally agree. I was trying to find the article that was, um, oh, it was from a couple weeks ago that was like the, you know, Keynote that that Cook is going to give, you know, in the future when when the next revolutionary product comes, um, I I didn't put the articles in, but there's you know of course as there always is Apple rumors about what's coming next, and it's and it's going to be you know more augmented reality and these lasers they're gonna. Reach out further and, and be able to project things, you know, into the environment. So I I, I will concur with the thesis of this this article that and and, and your position too that companies are going to try to continue to you know convince us just sort of like televisions, right? Hey, everyone's got to have 3D television. Hey, everyone needs a curved screen. You know, I mean, do we really? Ah, uh, not really. No, I don't think so. And so uh, until we until we see a different form factor, you know, which could be glasses. I mean, at CES, I, I saw a few you know videos and articles about some things that people are are trying to push there. But um, yeah, we're 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 not there yet, and we've we've reached a plateau. So Apple extended their profitability by you know this last time with uh, the iPhone. Models, you know, magnifying the the profits that they had. But as we've we've mentioned, multiple factors. Uh, China, in this latest call report, you know, Cook was was acknowledging that the uh, what is I'll, I'll show my lack of knowledge of macroeconomics. Uh, I think the strong dollar that has that has weakened, you know, currencies in China and other places have just have made the cost of of their devices ridiculous, uh, which they were kind of ridiculous anyway. So yes, we're gonna continue to see shifts and changes where this is really going to be a game changer. I mean, we're, I don't know what the average uh, age of the child in Missoula, Montana who walks into a school with a a, cell, a smartphone is today, Jason, we were talking about this at lunch with some folks, um, a lot of parents and, and kids too, as we've had these conversations, will talk about middle school, you know, being a time when oh, I'm going to be picked up or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to need a phone quote unquote. Um, But there's a ton of kids that are younger that are, that are walking in with them. And so not only the ubiquity and the the low cost and the fact that you don't have to have the latest model in order to have incredible power is going to be a dynamic that, that continues to affect us in schools, but also the speed of the network, right? And perhaps we still are four or five years away from, from 5G. I mean, there's a lot of hype about it, but it's not, it's not here yet. But that kind of of bandwidth, even with 4G and LTEs, it's pretty stunning. Um, And 5G is, uh, you know, supposedly coming and it's on the way. So the ubiquity of smartphones, the challenges that those pose. um, And then I I would also say, you know, the opportunities, because, you know, there's challenges to distraction and and objectionable or or not appropriate content that that are posed by having a smartphone in, uh, in your pocket or in your hand. But there's also tremendous opportunities that we have to be able to, also, you know, check facts, uh, pull in information, and even create and produce media. And those are going to be things that we're just going to be able to do more of as well. So I don't know when uh, my wife's 6S is going to get updated. It's going gonna, it's gonna to happen at some time. But I will say this weekend um, I uh, have been um, using uh, one of the new iPads that has the USB-C adapter no headphone. And I wanted to use that for a webinar and I didn't have any way to plug in because there's no headphone jack and I don't have a USB-C to, uh, you know, typical analog eighth inch audio. I, I've got the lightning adapter, but anyway, we're in a crazy time with all these changing standards and stuff like that. That's just a sign up. Right. So.
0: Well, and just a to sign too, I mean, our uh, everyone but uh, but me and my family is an iPhone user. So my wife is using a 6S, my in-laws are using 6s, my mom is using a 5S, very happily, I might add, and, and actually uh, push back against what I offer to update her to a more modern phone. Uh, and yeah, I just, you know, uh, and and my family's pretty tech-savvy. I mean, I'm the nerdiest of, of the crew, but my family's pretty tech-savvy. We you know, share media all the time with each other. We do a lot of communication using the phones, and they're just not updating So... Uh yeah, I you know, and if there's less money available in hardware updates, right? If companies can't make profits by selling the newest, latest greatest each year, that's going to start impacting the the uh, innovation. It could be argued, I think, we've talked a lot about Moore's law on this podcast that things get faster at a predictable rate, right? And and speed doubles It's 18 months, I think is what Moore's law says, that has been obliterated, uh, obliterated recently. Um Uh, I think, because there may be things that are are getting faster and cheaper, um, but the rate is slowing down, I think, fairly dramatically. And, you know, how much more can you really make a a smartphone exciting in 2020, right? Uh, You know, when we're debating about notches in phones, like that's the thing that apparently people are passionate about. Right. Maybe we've exceeded the end of the innovation cycle.
1: Well, it's yeah, it's, it's something else is going to come. Let me pick up a couple other articles on this under the security tab, and then maybe we can flip back up to a few under privacy because there is a lot of overlap with these. Uh, Huawei CFO arrested in Canada right before Christmas. So this is ZDNet on January twenty eighth. United States unseals charges against Huawei and its CFO. Now there's some really strange stuff going on with allegations about Chinese spying and talking about Huawei as, you know, the number one cell phone manufacturer and reseller in China and, and, and it's chips. If you'll remember, um, I think this was, yeah, it was before, before the break, um, Bloomberg ran this article alleging that, you know, all of these servers and other, you know, rack mounted video encoders and devices had these chips that had been implanted that were phoning home and, you know, equated to security vulnerabilities, Apple and Amazon, you know, came out and said, no, this is false. This isn't true. And then that's just kind of quieted down. We haven't really, you know, heard about that. Like, was that real? I mean, you wouldn't think that these Bloomberg journalists are going to put their careers on the line and the company is, is going to go on the line for that if they didn't have a lot of uh, basis for that. Well, um, Huawei CFO has, has, is, is being held in, in Canada now. And so evidently it's going to, uh, that person is going to face extradition to the United States. This is happening at times where there's a, a brooding trade war, you know, between the, China and the United States. And so I was hearing today on my Google home. I don't know if I was listening to probably BBC News or it may have been, um, Oh gosh, I'm not going My mind is gonna blank. But one of the other sources, you know, it's like the different parts of the U.S. government, different officials who aren't necessarily in coordination with each other, you know, are are doing these kinds of things. So it's it's apparent that uh, espionage and you know some of the the conspiracy stuff here um, has to do with T-Mobile and the ways in which. Uh, they've just have wholesale copied code. This was a T-Mobile phone testing robot called Tappy and the ways in which, you know, the, the company Huawei uh, you know, just wholesale copy that I've, I've read some other things about when you look at the code and, and the, you know, grammar mistakes and other things. Oh, actually this was Leo Laporte talking about it. There was, there's stuff that said copyright HP, you know, in, in some of the, the firmware and some of the software and things like that, that it has. So, I don't know. How does this affect us in schools, Jason? And is this anything that kids need to be aware of? I mean, it's like there's this whole really tense war going on with a lot of tensions. I mean, and and I don't know that Americans are that aware of it. Right? Huawei is not not for sale for it uh, on our on our shelves. So we're just we're not caring about it. Is this some is it something that kids should know about? And we should be talking about it all in school.
0: First, let me note that um, I took a trip to Costa Rica in November, and the last day we were in Costa Rica, we, were, we had to stay overnight in the capital city to catch a, a plane out the next morning. And my wife and I went to a Costa Rican Walmart, which was right next to our airport hotel. It was a wonderful experience, super interesting what's there. Um, we, uh, we ended up buying a lot of what I like to do in, in any country I visit, which is to uh, raid the office supply aisle to buy interesting looking notebooks and pens. I did spend some time in the electronics section, which kind of looked like a Sam's Club or a Costco electronics section, um, and different than what the typical uh, Walmart electronics section looked like in the United States. But there were tons of Huawei phones there. Right? We, I think they've even had a couple articles here. I know I've read some about the plays that Huawei is made in Africa and in Eastern Europe. They are a major manufacturer of cell phones around the world. Um, I obviously think this is something that we should be aware of. If for no other reason that there are other manufacturers uh, uh, that that make all of their cell phones in China, right? Apple is a good example of that. A hundred percent of their cell phone parts, the cell phones themselves, are made in China. So where I think the um, where I think the, the conversation comes into schools, obviously I'm a little biased here as a social studies teacher, and this is where I think a lot of this belongs. Is talking about that, you know, we have a, a, a 200 years history of of espionage uh, uh, by other countries in the United States. And that has evolved with the times, right? Like it is something that uh, we have to be acutely aware of because globalization has obviously dramatically impacted uh, supply chains, uh, where products come from. um, But that doesn't decrease the tensions that may have existed before uh, globalization. So yeah, I think you should be talking about this. And also be aware. That, you know, uh, your data could be at risk whether you use completely, uh, best practices or not, right? And so even if you're extremely safe and extremely careful about things, data could ultimately be at risk. And not to beat the, the drum about the technology correction again, but I think the blind faith in data being okay, um, or there being economic interest and in that being alone good enough to protect data, uh, you know, I I, I remember G even thinking recently a few years ago people that say things never put anything on the internet that you wouldn't want to be public, and of course that seems a little ridiculous because the amount of stuff that is maybe not, uh, you know, uh, uh, a huge risk to have out there, but certainly embarrassing to have on the be released on the internet. I think that impacts uh, the way things things play out. So absolutely, uh, these are important discussions to have. Uh,
1: uh, I would just last last quick comment it's interesting how it sounds like the purchasing of tech gear is almost becoming part of nationalism in china yeah. in terms of we're, we're we're going local you know we're going native we're sticking with huawei we're not going to you know go with that that apple stuff so it it really is a shift i mean even though Apple is designed in California and built in china. Ironically, um, there's some there's some major shifts that are they're that going on with that, um, and the fact that that you know, they're completely blocked here. I mean, is it just a matter of time before Apple is is going to be blocked there in terms of like a quid quid pro quo? So I think we are in a, a quite different environment than we were a few years ago when we were reading about the world is flat and we were all singing kumbaya about the ways in which you know all <laughs> wasn't we weren't saying this, Emmanuel Kant's vision of perpetual peace, but, I mean, there was kind of this idea that economics was going to bring down all the walls and our interdependence was going to be so great that, you know, we, we weren't going to have conflict anymore. And, and in many ways, you know, virtually, metaphorically, as well as physically, uh, the ways in which people are wanting to put up walls and raise walls is, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty sad, but it's, it's, it's having an impact. And I think, um, you know, we're, we're not – We're not having the choice to to even buy Huawei at all, and that's because our government has has made a choice to say these things are not for sale here. and And I don't think that most Americans realize the economic import of that uh, globally when you would look outside our borders. Okay. All right. What about some other Facebook stuff? We got a, a heck of a lot of other privacy stuff going on Facebook and Apple, actually.
0: Yeah, there's a couple a couple things uh, that I want to mention more about Facebook and privacy. The breaking news today, and it's not quite breaking enough to break out the EdTech Situation Room breaking news bumper, but uh, there was a story that appeared uh, across uh, Internet uh, journals this morning regarding something called the Facebook Research App. And the Facebook Research App is an app that if you were between 13 and 35 years old, you could download this app, sign up, Uh, It's essentially a VPN, or virtual private network, that you would send all your traffic through, and in exchange for it sniffing out everything that you're looking at, all of your messages, everything Facebook-related, and websites you go to, and your location, you receive the paltry sum of $20 a month. In other words you could sell your privacy uh, to Facebook for, for 20 bucks a month. And apparently the way the app works and the way the app tracks things actually violates App Store policies. And so the, the news today was that uh, not only this app existed, and apparently has for, for a number of years, uh, but more importantly that in the way it works, it violates Apple App Store uh, policies. And Facebook has announced today they'll be taking the app down um, uh, off the App Store. It sounds like I'm going to get kicked off anyways. And there's also some question that perhaps a Facebook, I'm sorry, a Google app also uh, did the same thing and might have provided um, uh, a research opportunity, uh, which is the way they would frame it, but essentially an opportunity to sell your your private data, um, your habits, and what you're looking at in the Internet for a sum a month. So, I have to say, um, I am a user of uh, Facebook's survey app. I'm sorry, uh, Google's survey app uh, that's on my my Android phone. And I get a survey, I'd say probably three or four times a week. And 80% of them are asking me things about places that I've visited. And I've opted, well, I didn't have to opt out of it. So, I guess I I chose not to opt out of, of, of Google, excuse me, tracking. My location. I think it's something useful in regards to location services that I utilize from Google. As part of that, I get asked questions, and I'm paid um, usually somewhere between twenty and forty cents to answer survey questions. That's something I've opted into. I rarely pay for apps, and when I do, I try to use a balance from from that particular app. But that all said, this is very big news to me that they were targeting particularly people under the age of eighteen. And there's been some question. I've read about four articles on this today. And, and it all, a lot of this seemed like it was conjecture. It was not something that, um, you know, was uh, uh, solidified yet on what the uh, situation was with these apps. But it was surprising to me. And obviously, um, in the era of uh, Facebook being considered a naughty company, this is probably not something to get um, you know your hands uh, stuck in the cookie jar here. So, but... Wes, first, have you heard of this before?
1: uh just some headlines and and i appreciate you putting those articles in and then we need to talk about apple and their their facetime bug as well you know yeah. cause it's some pretty significant things so uh no i had not really i hadn't read the articles i just just seen i mean I, I know that we've got you know surveys and things like that that are that are flying around but i hadn't heard about the the apps you know being banned and you know the teens being being paid and those kind of things
0: well, and the thing that's always interesting to me here, and I'm sure we'll hear these stories in the next couple of days, is the number of parents where kids were doing this, maybe even with a fake signature, right? Um, mm-hmm. That were receiving money from, from uh, Facebook in order to do this. And so, yeah, definitely concerning to me, especially if we're targeting people under the age of 18.
1: And here's the harm that, that we're just not awake to yet. And it goes back to, to last week talking about surveillance capitalism. We're not just talking about targeted ads, right? Because I think most of us have, have maybe had that conversation in our heads, like, Hey, I'm, you know, giving up some information and I'm going to, I'm going to see some ads that companies want to, want to sell, uh, to me or, you know, sell products to me. And, 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 and I'm, you know, but I'm using Gmail and I'm using Google Docs and that's okay. But surveillance capitalism is not just about targeted ads. It's about predicting behavior. And then it's literally about hacking people's behavior to include elections and and politics and things like that. And so we've talked on the show before about how challenging it is to try to, you know, perhaps maybe get, you know, not just kids, but adults as well to care about privacy. Um, and, And the issues go beyond privacy. It also has to do with the hackability of the human brain and the ability for these Uh, tools that we are using now to, you know, access our news, connect with each other, uh, literally jack our, our minds into not, not physically with a, a chip that's in our brain, but with, you know, this thing that's in our hand, uh, a large part of the day. Um, yeah, I, I would, I would say that is a grand challenge for digital citizenship is how can we help Folks across the the ages, you know, from from our our aging grandparents and and parents to, you know, young young kids and students and and everybody in between to understand the stakes that are here and that it's all tied in with this data gathering. I I really think it's something that's going to run its course and we're going to see a lot worse I'm being dystopian here. But, you know, in the the next election cycle, um, things are not. I don't think going to get dramatically better. In fact, I think they're going to get worse. And I don't. Uh, well, that, that's also what that author of the surveillance capitalism book says. Says too is that it's gonna it's gonna have to go go further if you know for people to wake up and then for there to be enough of a tech correction. Uh, it, you know, if it happens, maybe, maybe it won't. Maybe the, the surveillance capitalists are gonna win. Um, but it's it's still something that I think people are able to say. Yeah, well, that's just a, that was just a privacy intrusion. Yeah, that was student data. That that wasn't good. You know, we're not seeing the entire elephant. We're we're just you know grasping the tail and and you know touching the the trunk and and we're not seeing the whole thing. I don't know. Maybe I'm maybe I'm off base with that. But hey, this is what happens when you listen to the Twit Network and Leo Laporte's passionate about something. You know, sometimes you're like, oh yeah, that's right. I believe that.
0: Yep, absolutely, and Wes, you want to talk a little bit about the FaceTime bug that was announced today?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> um, a kid who was playing Fortnite discovered a really significant bug in FaceTime, and as you may remember, uh, you know, uh, Apple's made some announcements about uh, you know multi-person FaceTime and, and how that was uh, you know going to be a big deal. Uh, so this 14-year-old from Arizona, shout out to Peggy, uh, found that and. Uh, He had started a FaceTime call with his friends so they could talk playing Fortnite. Uh, But he was able to listen to conversations through his friend's phone, even though the friend hadn't answered the call yet. And so they tried to contact Apple, warn them uh, for a week and were not able to do so. Um, And so, you know, finally um, they, I guess they, yeah, uh, put out some tweets and um, anyway, it, it, it went mainstream and, uh, Apple has pulled the update, and they are, were not available for for comments so uh, actually yeah she they tweeted at Tim Cook saying they were going to go public if apple didn't respond. You know companies obviously need to have some very transparent ways and and maybe this is the thing with chicken little you 're like well you 're going to get too many false flags, but you know when, when hackers find something, how do they tell you if if they're wanting to be a white hat? You know, do you have a way to listen? So this actually happened on what global data privacy day too, which was a little ironic. So Apple has been carrying that flag for privacy to, and they, you know, ran ads at, C, at uh, CES talking about what stays on your iPhone stays on your, or what happens on your iPhone stays on your iPhone or whatever, kind of a, you know, dig at Vegas and, and whatever. So, um, Hey, every, everybody is, uh, susceptible and, uh, you know companies have to be responsive, in fact, I think companies define themselves sometimes more by the way they respond than by the the fact that something happened you know because we're you're going to have breaches and you're going to have uh you're going to have and, and that's hey let's take that back to a school side you know are you ready for a data breach at school? Do you know who you're going to call? Do you have some insurance in place that's going to help with that um, you know how much of of your data you know is local and you are liable for? Um, and how much of it is is as outsourced in the cloud and other companies. I mean, these are really, really important things for schools to to look at. And it doesn't take me very long sitting in a, a security webinar nowadays to, you know, wonder if I should be sleeping at all at night, you know, in terms of responsibility. I I can and I do because I think we've been on a good track of, you know, Moving things to the cloud, having, you know, less of our, you know, critical uh, student information and, and, and also business information, you know, just locally housed. But anyway, those are all things to prepare for because we could probably say, you know, somewhat pessimistically, it's not a matter of if you're going to be hacked. It probably is a matter of when you're going to be hacked. And most school networks probably have been compromised, right? D- different uh, nefarious folks, whether they are individuals, organizations that are private or they're, you know, they're probably not nation states, but, you know, they're trying to get in and see how they can exploit you. And that is something I'm going to talk to our faculty about, you know, tomorrow is we're under cyber attack right now. The phishing attacks continue, you know, on a, on a weekly basis. And um, that's why we do two-step verification. We're continuing to, you know, try to encourage people to do that on as many sites as they can and uh, use different passwords everywhere they can. Don't repeat the same password anywhere. And I bet if we were to survey our faculty, and that's probably like most schools, the statistics are not wonderful for the number of people that would raise their hand and say, yep, that's what I do today. Don't use the same password anywhere else.
0: Yep, absolutely. And I have concerns about that as well. So uh, we're just uh, nearing the top of the hour. So is there any other story, Wes, you'd like to cover today before we move on to the Geeks of the Week?
1: Yeah, there's a little (laughs) – this was a weird kind of source, but uh, this definitely caught my eye. Scientists say they'll have a complete cancer cure within a year. And this was from a local news affiliate down in Florida, uh, in uh, Miami-Dade County, I think, on the 29th. Um, but this is a genomics article. Uh, it's been a while, but, you know, we've talked about uh, genomics and biotech and those sorts of things on the show before. And so they say uh, they're quoting the, the words of a lead scientist of an Israeli group that believes within 12 months they'll have a cure for all cancers. And what they're talking about is introducing uh, DNA coding for a protein that essentially is like a cancer antibiotic. And there was a different team of scientists in 2018 that actually won a Nobel prize for doing this. And it's called the, it's looks like soap, but it's S it's capital S little O capital A capital P soap technology. Um, And so this is, this is pretty incredible. It also makes me think about the flu, right? we're just starting to gear up with the flu, you know, nationwide, worldwide, whatever. And, uh, I w- we were just talking to a doctor who said, yeah, it's literally like they, you know, are taking a dart and throwing it against the wall to guess, you know, what the strain might be for this, this year. Um, what they're talking about here is something that's really flexible as far as adapting to the mutation. So, you yeah, know, who knows? We'll, we'll, we'll see. But that's, that's not every day. I mean, Again, I check my sources. Like, was this legit? Is this just some Yahoo website that's saying this? Or does this seem to be credible? And, I mean, it it seems to be uh, a credible uh, news source, you know, from from Miami-Dade. In fact, I I went to the About page. This There's a good little, you know, small media literacy. You know, before you share the link, you know, what kinds of due diligence checks are are you doing to make sure that, you know, this is a a credible source? So the uh, site itself is... Owned by, um, oh, what does it say here? Well, I was thinking it was a more, more. I, I was, it was more of a mainstream company. Who knows? Maybe I've just shared something that's completely illegitimate, but I don't think so. It looks like it's a. Well, I'll, I'll ask my friend Felix. Hey, have you ever heard of Local Ten? I don't think somebody's running it out of their garage. Yeah, uh, yeah,
0: I looked at it too, and it looks like it's uh, maybe an NBC an NBC affiliate. So. Yeah,
1: it does. Here Anything? we go. All yeah, right.
0: there, there's one more I want to focus on, and um, uh, in my ongoing attempt to prove to people that Chromebooks are just perfect for power users, there's a really interesting article from 9 to 5 Google, it was today, and um, Square, the company that makes um, the uh, the little Square uh, things that going to phones that I charge, they're uh, an e-commerce uh, platform. Uh, for, for charging, Square is now issuing uh, members of their team um, Chromebook Pixels. So that is the uh, high-end Google-created Chromebook. And in particular, they are also putting their design team on Chromebook Pixels. And that, of course, it's very interesting to me because um, I am now uh, trying to be a 100% Chromebook user. Uh, shh, don't tell anyone, but I still actually... Um, remote into a Windows PC to use Illustrator. It's the only program I can't find a, a decent web-based alternative for. There are web-based uh, vector editors, but uh, I now that I know how to use Illustrator, about 2% of its power, I use it quite often in graphic work, and I love it. I, I think working in vectors is a lot of fun. Um, but this gives me some hope that when uh, you know an e- e-commerce giant like Square is moving towards Chromebooks, and they also said that... Uh, Uh, they had talked to their employees, and they found that the Pixelbook was considered to be an employee favorite. It wasn't just forced upon them that employees liked and embraced the platform. That is super interesting, and they're offering it to their designers as an alternative uh, to MacBooks. And they also point out a tool that I have never heard of before that I will be playing with. It is called Figma. Uh, Figma is a design tool. It looks kind of like Canva, which is my uh, favorite way to design. In fact, one of the things that I felt very proud of last night um, was, uh, my wife, uh, had just made a, I guess I can let the cat out of the bag because none of her friends are listening to this podcast. I can guarantee it, but she has a book club that she's been, uh, uh going to since 2005, a group of women uh, meet monthly to talk about a book and there may be wine involved in, in food, but each month they have a, uh uh food that was inspired by the book. My wife put together in a cookbook and she asked me to design a cover for it last night and I mimicked, uh, the joy of cooking, um, uh, uh, cookbook cover, which is, uh, I think, a very visible design. She ended up not using it, and I, you know, tears were cried as a designer, but I was able to get on Canva and uh, on a Chromebook and create that in, in literally five minutes, right? There's just really wonderful tools there. So I'm excited to see that someone else is recognizing that and uh, sees value in the Chrome
1: one more Chrome note: uh, the Pinebook Pro, Jason, is going to be challenging Chromebooks. It's been ninety-nine dollars for the uh, two gig version, and they're going to be loading it up. It's a Linux-based, uh, you know, lightweight laptop. So probably just another sign of Moore's law and the maturation and the ways in which you know we can get a heck of a lot of processing power for for not very much. Um, I think FOSS, uh, free and open source software, is continuing to be a fringe movement, but there certainly are some school districts that have embraced it wholeheartedly. Uh, and then, you know, and depending upon, you know, your budget, your perspective, and then also your, your capacity to support Linux and open source and things like that, um, you know, maybe that's something to look at that could be, could be viable. So.
0: Yep, absolutely so
1: shall we geek of the wicket?
0: let's do it uh, all code starts quick one um youtube tv announced last week that their product is now basically available nationwide in, in over 90 percent of the locations they have local channels available the way you know how expansive that is is that missoula montana um channels are available on youtube tv i i've only tried it out in a brief trial a couple months ago I had live, where I was located at to get access to it because, again, not available in Montana. But I heard from three different friends that are still television connoisseurs that the DVR interface on YouTube TV is a premier experience and mimics those of you that have pined for the old TiVo interface, which is uh, not something that that uh, really appears in modern-day DVRs or modern-day TV experiences. So YouTube TV, 40 bucks a month, a cable alternative that doesn't require that you have cable.
1: Wow, uh, I've just actually activated a Spotify uh, subs- premium subscription, um, but it looks like with Google Play Music merging with YouTube Music and the behemoth of that is, I mean, gosh, all the things that it's going to offer. Um, I don't know. I'm enjoying Spotify for now. All right. I have three. I'll go fast. Dell Command Update learned in the past month that if you have any kind of Dell computer, you can run this little program, and it's going to identify all the specific drivers and firmware updates for your device, and it's going to run those. And because of the Microsoft updates, we've got a whole bunch of Dell all-in-one computers that ended up being display-bricked by the update, and we had to – you mentioned – uh, you know, the, the pace that you put on the, C- on the back of the, the CPU to, you know, reduce heat and, so anyway, boy, I know how to do a lot of new things, but that was one of the the good things I just never heard of before. So if you happen to have Dell computers, and you don't know about Dell Command Update. It's free and it's uh, it's important. And and hey, that can even stop your computers from being display bricked. I, hopefully, Microsoft is not going to re- you know have another recurrence of that issue. Uh, Clipchamp is a free online website for editing video. It's a freemium model, so you can pay for pro features. But we've got students right now doing some Spanish uh, versions of popular movies like Ferris Bueller's Day. These are five-minute skit versions. But anyway, instead of using iMovie on an iPad, uh, some of them are editing with ClipChamp, and they're really liking that a lot, Uh, something that would be different than, let's say, WeVideo or something that you're you're paying for. And then lastly, that website I already mentioned, digi.me, looks like an interesting website to check out in terms of trying to take more control over our uh, data and promote a future where we are not simply the pawns of the overlords of the surveillance capitalism you know, world. So that's it.
0: Okay. Well, this is the NX Situation Room. We are a weekly podcast that goes over the headlines from the technology media and get a little classroom spin. Wes, where can people find you on the Internet?
1: I am W. Fryer on Twitter, and my blog is speedofcreativity.org.
0: And my name is Jason Knifer. You can find me at n e i f f e r N E I F F E R.com, where you can find out more about my work and, more importantly, where to book me for professional development gigs, speaking gigs, perhaps some consulting work. Uh, you can find information about me there. I'm also on Twitter uh, at TechSavvyTeach, and uh, I am very happy to announce this week that NCC's Savvy Teachers uh, the blog at blog.ncc.org are going through a reboot. We are expanding our team by a factor of two. We are adding two more teachers to the Tech Savvy Teacher Team, the Tech Savvy Librarian and the Craft Savvy Teacher, Morgan Larson, and Mary uh, Elizabeth Pearson are joining us for uh, some zany, wacky, wild stuff uh, throughout the year and also at the NCC Conference at the end of February. You'll find out more about that at blog.ncc.org. But...
1: I will add one quick note, and that is that if you think you get a lot of email, take a look at the iPhone screenshot of Mike Agostinelli, who is one of the Tech Savvy teachers. I saw that today and thought, my lord, I I don't have any email problems. So I don't know how he does it, but he does.
0: And the irony is, of course, that he was talking about uh, in the paragraph before how one of his great strategies is inbox zero, which is true. At work, he is a big inbox zero guy. But he does not apply that to his personal account. So I noticed that as well. It's a delightful article. So um, if you like more antics like this, you can join us once a week at the SR podcast. We are available live on Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Mountain, 9 p.m. Central Time. It is 3 a.m. UTC if you're interested in that. You can join us live or you can download us wherever finer podcasts are aggregated or you can go to our website, edtechsr.com, see our show notes, or download little tiny MP3s to listen on whatever device plays those. I look forward to seeing you in a future episode of TechSR. We invite you to stay safe and stay savvy. Good night.
1: Good night.